0: Hello and welcome to the Travel Diaries podcast. I'm Holly Rubenstein. I'm a travel and entertainment journalist. And here each week, I'll be speaking to a very special guest about the seven chapters in their life's travel diaries. From their earliest childhood travel memory and the first place they fell in love with, to their hidden gem and what's at the top of their travel bucket list, we'll be uncovering their adventures around the world and the travel experiences and destinations that have shaped their lives. On today's season five finale, I'm joined by one of the UK's leading broadcasters and most recognisable voices, Jeremy Vine. Jeremy began his journalism career as a BBC reporter for The Today Show before becoming the BBC's political correspondent at Westminster and the BBC's Africa correspondent based out of Johannesburg. He worked alongside Jeremy Paxman as a presenter on Newsnight and back in 2015 he donned his dancing shoes, becoming a hugely popular contestant on Strictly Come Dancing. Although his first dance with partner Karen Clifton was scored a two by Judge Craig Revel Horwood. These days, Jeremy's based back in the UK and along with his daily topical programme on Channel 5, his daily BBC Radio 2 programme is the most listened to news show on UK radio. He's also an accomplished author and tells us about his latest novel, which is set in Spain. Given that his day job involves chatting to anyone and everyone, it's no surprise that Jeremy had no shortage of conversation today. And we have a great time dashing around the world with his travel diaries from the Channel Islands to an island off Canada, Siberia to Oman. This is a really fun one. I hope you enjoy it. Let's get started. Jeremy Vine, welcome to the Travel Diaries podcast. It is such a pleasure to see you today. How are you? I'm. Thank
1: you. I'm well and I've just cycled home and the, yeah, the weather was okay, so I can't complain.
0: <laughs> I have enjoyed watching your cycling videos on YouTube, by the way, as a total aside. But I'm actually more distracted right now with the room that you are in because I can see some gold shoes on the wall <laughs> behind you that I'm wondering... Are these Strictly shoes?
1: They are actually. Now, so there's two sets of shoes on the wall and they're quite, for, for anyone listening to picture this, they're a little, they're a good 10 feet away. So that's a good spot by you, Holly. <laughs> there's some gold shoes that I was allowed to take away from Strictly, which were, I think, for a Christmas special. And I think the song was, All I Want for Christmas Is Whatever. Oh, I love that song. Sung that at my wedding. Yeah. I know, it's an incredible song. I mean, I didn't realize that Mariah Carey wrote that and it's just one of the best-selling Christmas songs ever. And then above them are some really massive heels, pink heels, and they were for children in need. Twenty years ago, with the Newsreaders' dance, which was done to the Rocky Horror Picture oh, Show.
0: God, you know, I think yeah. I remember that.
1: I know, incredible to look back because because you see the the characters in it. They're all still at the Beeb: Andrew Marr and Sophie Rayworth and Jeremy Bowen and Michael and uh, Michael Burke. Not so, but it was it's amazing those those children in need nights. It's always good to just do one of them,
0: and they it's go down in fun. history.
1: Well they do it there a bit and it's the one moment you see the newsreader's not being all serious.
0: <laughs> and you said that you've you know you've just got home you've just cycled home we're speaking at like 4:30 p.m. and for my listeners who aren't familiar with a typical day of Jeremy Vine. It started a long time ago. Can you take us? A, <laughs> I mean, I'd be ready for bed by now. So like, take me through a, a, a normal day for you right now.
1: Well, it's funny because the time is 16.36 on my computer and my alarm goes off at 4.42. So we're Oof. about to hit the 12 hour point. So in in about, yeah, six minutes. 4.42,
0: that's very precise. I don't know why.
1: Now tell you why. Because I set my alarm alarm on Alexa, Mm -hmm. if I tell Alexa to set the alarm for 4.40, she can sometimes think I'm saying 4.14. So you have to (laughs) say a time that Alexa can't get wrong. So I say, Alexa, set alarm for 4.42 a.m. weekdays. And that's when I get up. Yeah, and I go and do Channel 5 and then I go and do Radio 2 and then I come home. So I'm not complaining.
0: And you are obviously covering every day – current affairs the topic of the moment and prior to covid i mean every day was totally different and and I, and i and i imagine that the news agenda was far more varied how are you finding this period of of news
1: well you you you've glossed over the bizarre sequence of events before covid which was was all brexit Brexit, yes so we had so we've now had two stories the like of which we've never seen before like this like buses where you wait for a story like this Mm -hmm. and then they come at the same time and we we haven't really seen anything like covid stroke brexit before brexit was all-encompassing it brought Mm. parliament to its knees it was Mm. day in day out and the, the audience was very engaged so people would be we got a call i remember from a a guy who said he was 92 years old, lived in, in, in Suffolk. His name was Cyril. He said the Brexit negotiations are not going well. It's time to send in the SAS. So people were <laughs> totally engaged with that. And then COVID, obviously, even more so, mm. where you've got a once-in-a-century story. Not since the Second World War have we had anything as big as this. So, yeah, there are moments when you want to break away from it, but you also realise they're uniquely engaging for the audience. I mean, we, you know, the fact that the story sends the audience out wearing a mask yeah. and ducking viruses that they presume are coming from every street corner is quite a big deal. It's quite, yeah,
0: I've never people heard are passionate like about it, one way or the other.
1: Yeah, and what it does also, it splits generations, which a lot of stories do. So mm. the young feel they've made sacrifices for the old. The old feel they've been terribly let down by the young because the young won't stop partying. Mm. And there's 20% of people now want all nightclubs closed permanently. You know, So <laughs> it, I feel sorry for the young, actually, because in, in the end, it's their sacrifice. They're the ones who've had to stay indoors when the illness doesn't really threaten them.
0: And you might say the same for Brexit, too. Oh,
1: that's a sacrifice. good. Gosh, what a thought. We did have, I think it was Jamelia, the pop star, came on Channel 5 one morning and said that if you get to a certain age, you should be stopped from voting. And she said about 75. And the audience went completely nuts. Mm. And you realize as a politician, you are, a lot of your time is spent trading with that voting generation. And the problem with 18, 19, 20 year olds, bless them all, is that they don't vote enough mm-hmm. this mm-hmm. is and they need to properly get out in force for stuff but they don't they've got better things to do i guess
0: engage yeah engage, i mean, you yeah.
1: think of when when corbyn had that youth quake mm. in 2017 where he did so well it seems to be that that younger people just suddenly got out of bed and voted for for him
0: uh, more politicians need to be on the bill at glastonbury
1: well yeah exactly but so many stories now come back to this young old thing so the the old call the young snowflakes they said that you know that no one had a peanut allergy in the battle of the somme mm-hmm. the young then say that the old have taken all the houses and the jobs and the final salary pensions and the holidays they got them all free of charge and destroyed the nhs on the way out and there's no way really of of squaring the two
0: Yeah. Well, I hope that one thing that uh, unites all of us is the love of travel. And we are going to go on a journey through the seven chapters of your life's travel diaries, Jeremy. And we're going to start at chapter one. And that is your earliest childhood travel memory. What would that be? I'll
1: tell you exactly, Holly. It was Jersey. And I think it was probably 1970, I think I was five, maybe 71. Went with my dad and my mom. My dad wore very thick glasses, you know, the sort that they had, the very heavy plastic frames. Yeah. And it rained all the time. But it was a foreign trip in those days. I mean, I didn't Mm -hmm. go abroad. Until I was fourteen, that's the first time I went abroad, and that was on a really, really bad school skiing trip. It, I mean, there's virtually we didn't do any skiing at all. But oh, the Jersey was the first, and I remember Jersey because they had a big slide at the hotel. It was really lethal. It was like this hollow metal tube, and you got down at such a speed. And I had some new shoes, what we would have called plimsolls, they mm-hmm. now call training shoes, and I put my feet down halfway down the slide, and the shoes stopped me, and I flew head over heels, and shot out the front of the slide. And I thought, this is like being born
0: again, you know.
1: (laughs) So, yeah, Jersey, 71.
0: I've never been to Jersey. I've heard that it's really beautiful. Um, Obviously, you have to, I think, normally take a flight to get there. Did you take a little plane? Yeah,
1: it's uh, obviously an island. I think Jersey, Guernsey. There's there's quite a few Alderney, Sark. When I was doing Egghead's, I, uh, for the BBC, we had a team from, I think, Alderney, if I've got that name right, and they sold it to me. Oh, sorry. I've just, just knocked my earphones off. I was so excited. They, <laughs> this team sold me Alderney in such a passionate way and said, yes. you must come and stay here. And I kept angling for someone to say, well, you can stay at, you know, we've got a place. Nobody did. But they just. I just thought I'd like to go back to one of those Channel Islands, mm. which must have a great history because, of course, during the war they were, I think they were occupied, weren't they?
0: If I remember correctly, there is um, a very hip and cool new hotel on Alderney called the Blonde Hedgehog. You
1: serious? That's a good shout. Mm,
0: I I really hope that I'm right. Um, it's definitely in one of the Channel Islands. I'm fairly sure it's Alderney, and so that has been added to my uh, travel wish list. So maybe check it out if you wanted an excuse to go back.
1: How lovely. A Channel Island and a hotel with a funny name. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. Sold.
0: <laughs> so you said that travel really became eye-opening for you when you started working for the BBC in your early 20s and you were sent to cover the Yug- Yugoslav war. Mm. So you're really kind of thrown in at the deep end there, both when it comes to travel, but also, you know, when it comes to work.
1: Yeah. So we're talking here, let's think 1990, I was 25 I got this, basically, I was a news trainee when you're just essentially left to sink or swim. And I used to go on my days off and go round to the Today Programme office, which was on the fourth floor of Broadcasting House, and ask them if I could do anything for them. And then they kept giving me these really difficult stories. Mm -hmm. And like, I don't know, ones that no one else wanted to do. I think I then brought them a story in Carnaby Street. I'd seen as I walked through one of the sellers of souvenirs in Carnaby Street included quite a lot of what looked like Nazi materials, iron crosses and swastikas and stuff. And I went, I borrowed the Today program's Ewer, which was at the time the portable reel-to-reel recorder Mm -hmm. and went to interview this guy. And he then attacked me with a plank of wood. And the brilliant thing that he did was he, as well as swinging it at me, he swung it at the the Ewer. And what I didn't realize was that that an attack on a reporter is of no consequence, but if you attack BBC equipment, it's regarded as completely heinous. So from (laughs) that point of view, I, I existed on the Today program, and then they gave me this job. And then the very first thing that happened, and this really is like a movie, isn't it, where you walk into the office and they say, right, the Yugoslav army, which is now basically the Serbian army, has attacked Slovenia, and you need to go there. And I and I, and I said, oh, okay, I'll go home and get my passport. And then I got a massive bollocking because I hadn't brought my passport into the office. And I thought, wow, this is like properly – Yeah. James Bond here. Yeah, this is really- yeah. So, yeah, and I was living in a really bad I – mean, it wasn't a very nice area called Northolt at the time, which was on the way to Heathrow. So I went via my house, picked up my passport, went to Yugoslavia, and it did somewhat blow my mind. It was exceptionally dangerous, actually. And I think back in the day, the BBC didn't really have health and safety to speak of. So you would just go to the story, and the story was dangerous. And, mm. you know, um, it was it was – a very strange way to see the beginning of the end of the Soviet Union, because that was obviously that was post Emperor Tito, or you know, President Tito in Yugoslavia and the breakup and da da da. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? It's not. It wasn't. I always think journalism is a holiday at high speed. You know, you're seeing stuff that as a tourist you spend a week over, but you have to do it in an hour. And it's fantastic, but you need quite a lot of time to process it afterwards. And I'm probably still processing my Yugoslavia trip, actually.
0: Mm, that's really interesting. And actually, I was going to ask you about about that, about the places that you've been at high speed, that you've thought, if I had some you know, time, I'd like to go back here and actually experience it you know, as a tourist, as a traveler.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, well, the, the key moment of awakening... For me, as a lad brought up in cheam in Surrey, who'd had a very, in terms of travel, a very sheltered life. And I really, you know, my year off, my gap year, such was the paucity of my imagination I spent it, it working in a timber yard in Sutton. You know, that's, that's as exotic <laughs> as I was. I really had no interest <laughs> in going anywhere. And then journalism forces you out. I mean, that's the brilliant thing. It forced me out. And I've been at Westminster, and it's possible. In the 90s, I mean, I love politics. So, I, party politics for me, as a person in in his, you know, mid, I guess, late 20s, 30, 30 years old, to be around politicians was was for me like being inside a movie. It was like I'd actually walked into the movie. So, I'd go down the House of Commons corridor, and there was Heseltine. And Heseltine brought down Thatcher. Oh, my God. Mm. But all that's fine. But you can see sometimes the Westminster lot. They don't, They get used to their creature comforts. They don't want to leave. And the best thing that ever happened was this brilliant guy called Richard Sandbrook just said, you need to go abroad. You really, really need to go and see some proper people and some real stories. And, you know, proper people in the sense of real people who, you know, haven't seen a microphone before. Because actually just doing news off from political interviews and press releases, actually it's not, it's not, it's too sheltered. And he was so right. And And he almost sort of kicked me onto the plane, I suppose. And I spent three years in Africa based in Johannesburg. And that was the one where I would say almost every single trip I did was a revelation. And I would love to go and do, do it all again, but life is always too short, isn't it? And this thing where we kind of, I don't know, we we bank all these experiences and think we'll do that again. We'll do that again. The key thing we need to know is we never will. We never, ever will do it again. There's only, you only ever do it once. And I suppose, so I, I went to 18 African countries in three years we would do a thing like, in those days, the BBC had lots of money. So, or at least it didn't have, no, it didn't have lots of money, but it didn't think about money before it deployed you. So we would be rung by someone relatively junior in London who'd say, "Uh, we've just seen on the wires, um, it says there's been a war between Eritrea and Ethiopia has kicked off. So we thought you should go. So we would just, just go and, you know, fly to a place called Lokichokyo, which is in northern Kenya, and then somehow go across the border and try and get up there or whatever. And in the end, I remember we got tried to get to the front line of this war and there was just a piece of string across the road and we 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 couldn't get past the piece of string. We thought, you know, it's just like three days traveling and we can't get past a piece of string <laughs> um, because there were all these soldiers around it who said yeah. no press. War, no press, I remember. And I always think I'd, I'd love to go back to some of those places and to see what's happened to the people because yeah. you always – when you see places where war is happening or has just been and gone, you always wonder what, what will be there in a year or two years or five years time, you know? And I do, I mean, the problem is you come back, if you're Africa correspondent, you come back with a view of a suffering continent where people aren't eating and are fighting. And of course, that's just in the nature of news that it's like a magnet, that kind of experience for the journalist. And we always said, if we see tourists, we're in the wrong place. Hmm. So, you yeah uh, it's, that's it's, it's really a problem if
0: you see tourists you're in the oh right god place, yeah.
1: absolutely if uh, it's the opposite way around at westminster actually if you see tourists at westminster you're in the right place <laughs> but in no in africa you don't want to go anywhere that's safe enough for tourists oh, so we were constantly off piste and i don't know what we're doing tomorrow but it's going to be interesting
2: hmm.
0: well i'd like to come back to africa later on actually but let's pause there and move on to chapter two which is the first place that you fell in love with
1: first place I fell in love with I, I think I would probably say because this was just off the back of university and I went touring in the states and I went to see the Grand Canyon mm-hmm. and myself and my then girlfriend we 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 got this high car and we drove to the edge of it and parked And we fell asleep in the car because it was dark, so we couldn't see it. So the dawn came up and it was revealed in front of us. And in those days, I think the parking and all that was probably, this is the 80s, so it was much less regimented. So we probably were parked right on the edge of this (laughs) blooming thing. And it was awesome because the shadows all move with the sun and the sun comes up quickly Mm -hmm. And, you know, at nighttime, we had a sense of the scale of it, but nothing like what we saw in the morning. And I just remember the colors and the shadows and the scale was just breathtaking. I'll never forget it. And I think when you see stuff, when you're younger, you, you know, it goes deep. It goes right into the synapses and the neurons, doesn't it? So you it's it's there right in the base of my spine, that memory.
0: Oh, that's so lovely. It's so powerful. I was there. Um. I want to say last year, but of course, like I, I last year gets a race, doesn't it? It was obviously yeah. t- two and a half years ago. The blue of the Colorado River against the stone. There's just that amazing blue that is just, yeah, it's so evocative, yeah. isn't it? It's so yeah. powerful that 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 vision. Um, Incredible.
1: What was funny about it was that obviously in those days there's no internet, so we just had a big guidebook, and the guidebook was really well thumbed by the end of the trip. And one of the things the guidebook said was go to get a car. The way you travel in the states is you deliver somebody's car who's moving house. <laughs> so you go to a place called Dependable Driveaway, and Dependable Driveaway would get a student to drive your car across the states. So I I went there. It was in New York City, and I said, "What do you got?" And they said, "Well, we got a car for a doctor who's moved from New Jersey to New Mexico." And it's a Mazda, I remember. Mm-hmm. So I, it took me, not, I think, 11 days to drive. I, I spent a very long time zigzagging all over the USA with this car.
0: So you flew into the East Coast. And then, what, were you on Route yeah. 66 pretty much then?
1: No, I think it. I, I took it down Birmingham, Alabama, Mobile, I remember. And then yeah. across Texas, I remember spending like a day... It was the sun has risen. The sun is set, and we ain't crossed Texas yet. Is the song, and that was that was it for me. Mm-hmm. I mean, the thing about this road trip through America is, it's a very bad way to spend your time. It really is. There's a lot of the time you don't see anything, and the driving is so so monotonous. But that was I was on my own then, and I met up with my then girlfriend, and we and that's when we did our Grand Canyon thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember mm-hmm. it was lovely. It's an amazing time.
0: And of course, life could have taken a very different turn if you had become a rock star. Yes.
1: What you mean from my my sort of teenage band? Yeah, I mean, I I well, it was only I when know.
0: researching a bit more into your kind of into that side of your life. I didn't really realise that you had actually you know garnered a lot of press attention. And
1: it's I wish it was as good as it sounds. The thing is, this I mean, in a way, it was my first lesson of of news, which is that you get noticed with something unusual and and not necessarily with something good. So having been in lots of bands as a teenager and, and tried so hard to be the jam or Elvis Costello or whatever, we then just formed this ridiculous band where we just wore massive flared trousers and sung about flares and unfashionable clothes. And it was so out of kilter with what was happening in the eighties, which was all Duran Duran and Visage and all the flock of seagulls, all these glam new romantic bands that it became momentarily, and it really was just a moment, it, it just became interesting to the Sun newspaper and this and smash hits and so on. And we had a bit of publicity, which was, you know, we we're on Radio 1 and stuff. Yeah. And we suddenly thought, that's it, we're, we've we arrived. And then within a week, it was gone. You know, we <laughs> suddenly thought, oh, God, that was it. The fickle nature of the
0: music industry.
1: It wasn't even 15 minutes. It was less, yeah. Five minutes ago. So, end. exactly. But I I haven't got, my brother has a lot of musical talent, um, the comedian Tim Vine. I mean, it's extraordinary. He can mm. write. He can play piano and guitar and drums. And I, I can't. So I'm always hanging on his coattails a bit. You know?
0: <laughs> do you ever kind of wonder for what could have been?
1: Oh, listen. The, every. I don't think any anyone who was 15 in 1980. I do. I think every single 15 year old in 1980 was in a band. Mm-hmm. Every single one of us. There wasn't any internet. We just had the jam. And Joy Division and New Order and all that. And The Cure and you know, all these incredible indie bands, John Peel, the Sex Pistols, etc. Then you got the progressive, you know, the prog rock, the Roxy music, T-Rex, Genesis, Bowie, of course. And that's all there was. There wasn't anything else. And this stuff never really appeared on television except on Top of the Pops, which was a terrible program made by very, very old disc jockeys. So you had to be in a band. So the the chances of actually your band succeeding were remote or slight, but we were all trying. I remember at one point I was in five bands because I played the drums. So I was shuttling around Cheam in this mini clubman with a drum kit <laughs> playing for all these bands and none of them got anywhere. Not, I mean, barely even to gig level. Do you, you know? still play but now a bit? I have got my little drum kit downstairs, actually, but it's one of those electric ones where you put headphones on. So,
0: I was very impressed f- by that BBC weatherman who did the amazing drumming. Did you see yes. that? Yes, what's to his the- name? I did see that. I don't remember yeah. his name. Um, but I, Brilliant. May- yeah, I mean, maybe you guys should do a duet.
1: Maybe we should. Maybe <laughs> I should do something. Yeah, you're right. You're right.
0: So, Chapter 3 is the place where you learn the most about yourself. Where or what would that be?
1: <sighs> well... I think I would say Siberia. And the reason I say that is that when the Soviet Union collapsed, I had to go, and this is again as a very untravelled person, I had to go to report from Russia. And the guy who ran the Today program then, Phil Harding, was was actually kind of a crazy genius in a way, because he said, look, whatever happens... I do not want to hear you reporting from Moscow. So you can fly to Moscow, but then you've got to go somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And actually, that's very, very sensible because it's 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 very easy to just say, and I'm now in Red Square. But actually, most of Russia is not Moscow. So I thought I'm going to go along. I'm going to do what he says. and I'm going to find a place that's a long way away. And I went to a place called Tomsk. And Tomsk is in Siberia. And it was not on maps until glasnost perestroika all the gorbachev stuff because tomsk was a place where they were making nuclear missiles and um so it was the whole town was basically invisible Mm -hmm. and not only that you can't move house in russia you can't move between cities without a permit so nobody really left it and yet they were having a sort of a normal life there and i just remember driving around it's one of these things where the inflation rate was so big that inflation would hit the taxi fare while you were in the cab my my colleague, the, the yeah, the Moscow correspondent um, said, Kevin Connolly said that he was having his hair cut and he heard the clippers go off behind his head and he said, what's happened? And the barber said, the price changed. So that was happening. The inflation was crazy. But at the same time, I just remember thinking, wow, they still have normal life here. You know, despite all the madness of it, there's still life going on. And it's kind of similar to the life I'm leading in, you know, London or whatever you know still people put on hats in the cold and they talk to each other and they play cards and there's a the middle class and there's a you know all, all that even in communism even with the absolute dereliction around them everything was being under construction and nothing was ever finished that's what I remember so there's the word I kept hearing this word Raimont, and I said what does it mean and they said repairs and I thought yeah that's like or whole of life is there and I remember going, I thought, I'll never go there again. But it was such an incredible experience. It's further from Moscow than Moscow is from London. So it's 5 hours yeah. flight from Moscow. It's, it's on the Trans-Siberian
0: Railway. Um, it's one of right. the stops. Um, it, another, Gregory Porter, the singer, picked um, the Trans-Siberian Railway journey as his all-time favourite trip on this podcast. And he talked about Omsk and Tomsk, I think, as yes, well. Yes, yes. Um, and it sounded kind of bleak and vast, but also pretty impactful in it, in its own way. I mean, what was your impression of the landscape and the, um, you know, that Siberia is a name that cu- is one of the most powerful destination names in terms of what it conjures, mm. doesn't it, in, yes. in terms of people's minds. So did it kind of live up to that, I suppose?
1: It, it lived down to that in the sense that I, I remember we flew in, so it was myself and a translator, a lovely guy called Nicholas, a Russian, and who I'd had to sort of hire privately in Moscow and we we flew in and and the car journey taxi journey between the airport and the city was really weird it was like the terrain you get in a kind of a game show like not grand theft auto but something more like the background of the of the mona lisa you know it was that sort of odd moonscape almost so yeah of course it's bleak i mean it's almost a a cliche isn't it and i remember we, we tried to because because communism had collapsed and there was, they couldn't work out what was going to take its place. There was, for example, outrage against paying taxes, I remember, that they were going to have to collect taxes and it hadn't happened before. And the guy who ran the kiosk, the newspaper kiosk in Tom's, had the tax inspectors had come to talk to him and he'd, he'd opened fire on them from inside the kiosk. Now, that is that is a crime that's likely to be detected quite easily. You know, it's yeah. not, there's only one person who opens fire from inside the <laughs> newspaper kiosk. And that's the guy who sells the newspapers. So all kinds of strange things were happening. And we they, they set up, because they had unemployment for the first time as well. So they set up a job center. And the job center had, I said, let's, can we, because they, they they had no data protection. So we would just go in and ask. And we said, have you got anyone with an interesting former job who's looking for work? And, and this woman said, yeah, we've got a former nuclear ballistics missiles engineer who hasn't got work anymore so we went to see (laughs) Uh, this guy and he was in a flat and he wouldn't let us in and he was shouting from behind the door and it was all just surreal uh, and i just thought that
0: sounds totally surreal sounds like a weird again and again
1: (laughs) yeah but again and again i think and you're so you know if you if you're a journalist and you travel you're born lucky and i often think this and i I thought this a lot not in exotic places and siberia I mean, strangely, it was quite exotic or Africa, but just sometimes going up country in the UK, I just always say to myself, other lives, and not to forget that that the the privilege that I have in my life is, or uh, possibly you, Holly. I don't know, but we, you know, that phrase we have now, check your privilege, is so important because mm. you just see when people get into trouble, when there's a house fire and they only get one of the kids out, whatever it is, you just think other lives, mm. you know. And that's what, in a way, what journalism is all about, I think, is going, finding difference and bringing it home.
0: And I guess also the shows that you do, connecting with everyone, it's a, it's a universal platform. You're, you're speaking to people from all over the country with all different points of view.
1: Well, this is at the heart of the difficulty is... To me, when I was reporting in Siberia, find it, which to me was like exploring the moon, I was thinking I'm doing what is at the heart of journalism, which is I'm going somewhere my listeners can't get to, and I'm bringing news back for them. Now I'm doing something very different, which is I'm, I'm allowing the listeners to tell stories about themselves. Mm-hmm. So it's call us and tell us if you're angry about Brexit. Call us and tell us if... Somebody, what did we have the other day? If, if, you've, uh, if you're angry about the war in Afghanistan and the Taliban are winning, and uh, did you fight in it? Are you upset? Tell us about, you know, is, is a plastic chopping board better than a wooden, wooden chopping board? Um, give us a ring if you've got red hair and you fell down a manhole. You know, all of that kind of stuff. And yeah. that's very much news reflecting the audience back at themselves. Yeah, And it's the opposite of where we started here, which is all about the exotic. And I remember going to see a speech, I saw a journalism conference. I was listening to this guy and he was the editor of the Kent Messenger. And he said, we had a thing where we did a beautiful baby competition and the sales went up. And then, so we decided to run it across the whole county and the sales went up even higher. And we basically realized there's no end to the formula that says that the more babies you put in the newspaper, the more copies you sell because everyone wants to see a picture of their baby. <laughs> and I thought, my God, yeah. if that's true, the whole of my ideas about journalism are wrong. Because I thought, journalism was about a picture of somebody else's baby. Now I'm told it's a picture of our baby. And I said to my mom, is this right? You know, that, that all you want to do when you open the newspaper is see your own child. And she said, yeah, of course it is. I only have pictures of my children on the mantelpiece, Jeremy. Why would you think it was anything else? So I think I just think I'm in total confusion. Here. I do not <laughs> know is what journalism so is. Fascinating. I don't know. I still don't know what the answer is because Channel 5 and Radio 2 are both very much, you know, we don't know what the news is. You tell us. Mm -hmm. Whereas back in the day when I was doing Newsnight and Radio 4, it was, here goes the reporter. He's been on this amazing journey and he's going to come back and hand the tablets down from the mountaintop and describe the world. And there's two very different visions there. I think
0: that the world wouldn't um, exist properly if we didn't have both of those different kinds of, of mediums.
1: Yes, I think you're absolutely right.
0: all over the world, thanks to Airbnb. It's the perfect way to make your travels even more rewarding. Instead of letting your home sit empty while you're off exploring new destinations, why not turn it into a cozy retreat for fellow travelers, just like I do. Whether you choose to rent out your entire space or just a spare room, It's up to you. I list my spare bedroom and it's been a fantastic experience, both financially rewarding and a great way to connect with new people. So if you're planning your own summer getaway or any trip for that matter, consider putting your home on Airbnb. It's a fantastic way to earn extra income that can go towards your travel expenses, souvenirs or even that special treat you've been eyeing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.co.uk forward slash host. Thank you to Airbnb for supporting the Travel Diaries. Chapter four is your all-time favourite destination. Where would you pick?
1: Well, I'm going to go somewhere comfortable actually i mean i think that i haven't really talked enough about the the, the deck chair <laughs> and and i went before covid and this is why it's particularly in my mind as a particularly lovely place i and before we even knew really that covid was going to hit in about february 2020 i went to oman
0: Ooh, lovely. and i
1: stayed this little resort which has got three or four hotels and i can't remember the name but you'll probably know
0: what part of oman uh, was it
1: oh i don't i mean it was somewhere you know it's like half an hour from the airport yeah.
0: in muscat yes exactly Mm
1: -hmm. yes and it's 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 quite a famous sort of collection of three or four big hotels and it was but you know you could trade that in for all kinds of other places by the sea where you you go and you do that thing where you and this is terrible to admit okay because this is the opposite of journalism here but you go and you don't even explore outside the hotel i mean it's that that bad and i we did go outside a couple of times but then the lure of the deck chair and I just, and I've got teenagers and um, two girls who are 14 and 17 now. That was our last holiday abroad. And so I've got particularly nice memories before and COVID was starting, actually, funnily yeah. enough, in February. Yeah. And obviously, one of the things we've learned about experts and COVID is that health and safety have had a very, very bad war because they didn't see it coming. They were very good sticking stickers on the floor of all the offices when they were empty, but they weren't so good at spotting it before it um, hit us from Wuhan. So at that point, it was already... It was, it was already, already
0: in China, wasn't it? Was it? Building,
1: it was building, yeah. yeah. But we got away with a foreign holiday in Amman, and it was an amazing, amazing thing. And that thing where you go down to breakfast, then it's a huge buffet, and you just... You yeah. know, where where you have a sort of hotel, all-encompassing all package thing.
0: Well, you can just I feel bad you, saying it. I,
1: yeah. I, it's
0: so silly, though, um, that we collectively that anyone should feel bad or, or like guilty saying that that is an all-time favorite because like it's a it's you know we need light and shade in our lives mm. don't we we need contrast and you lead this hectic fast-paced life to have the opportunity to have you know all thoughts take you know all decision making almost taken away from me and just the opportunity to unwind is I can completely relate to that sometimes you just want to be somewhere that's warm somewhere that has a beautiful pool lovely food and the opportunity to like read a good book
1: read a good book is is crucial you're absolutely right and I yes so we don't have to feel guilty my wife is an explorer so I if I'm on the deck chair every day of the week there will at the at the end there'll be an inquest as to why we didn't get out of the hotel at all so i need to be a little bit wouldn't it be great to see the local museum um but it's funny you know of course that can go can be become crazy where you get interviews with brits at sharm sheikh while there's a revolution going on in cairo mm. and then then we start to think what this doesn't look right at all but yeah i've been to sharm el sheikh actually i mean yeah and yeah, the coast of Tunisia. So I've had a few of those of those beach holidays, and they are nice. Yeah.
0: Has your job affected the decision making of places that you would travel to? The
1: the key thing that's that's that affected my thoughts on that was the Tunisian attack, actually, mm. where and that was a place I'm just trying to remember, not Sousa, but something like that on the on the coast of Tunisia, and it was very near where we had been staying a couple of years earlier, and. And then I get people saying, oh, you should just you know, support their tourism. That's all they've got. And I say, well, do you have kids? And they say, no, we don't. And if you've got kids and you're taking them into a situation where you, you'd be open to that, you get very risk-averse. And I'm not a, a totally risk-averse person. I just don't – the one in a million of, of that happening, I just would would not be able to forgive myself for. So I we've taken off of our itinerary some of those areas where – There's an Al-Qaeda threat. I don't know Mm -hmm. whether that's a bit outdated now, but Tunisia would be one. I don't know about Morocco. Um, I mean, Kenya had a terrible attack in its shopping mall, the Westgate. Yeah. Yeah.
0: But then the thing is, is what I've always said, because I've checked those kind of foreign office guides as well. But then if you look at the one for like London it's kind it's just as bad yeah
1: I know well do you know it's funny when it when we did an item on Radio 2 and we said how and this was after I don't know um a lot of sort of terror stuff that happened in Paris and stuff and how do you avoid becoming a victim and of course we had the Manchester bombings as well how do you avoid becoming a victim of terror in the UK and all the listeners just rang up and said just don't go to London that's that's it mm. and for us living and working in London, we were thinking, well, we didn't think it was that dangerous. But um, I guess that, that for a lot of people in the UK, that's, that's the main terror target. Mm,
0: you know? mm-hmm.
1: um, so, yeah, it's a shame that that figures, but it does. And it means that as a family, I, our preferred holiday destination is actually Devon, strangely.
0: Oh, really? So would de- the place that you go to in Devon qualify as a hidden gem, perhaps?
1: Yeah, I'm gonna say—is that my next chapter? It is. <laughs> <laughs> I'm all—I'm so wary of, of revealing a hidden gem here because because obviously once the gem is revealed, it's not hidden. But I'm gonna tell you the place that I really really love, mm-hmm. and I discovered it by accident. And Those are the
0: best hidden gems.
1: Yeah, and what happened was I had a book out a few years ago, which was about a sort of memoir of the BBC, and I did I did a lovely book tour with the PR person for the publisher um called Helen Mockridge if she's listening uh mm-hmm. we're still friends and we went to the Appledore Book Festival which at the time was just starting out and it was so lovely the town was so lovely the people were so lovely it wasn't the biggest book festival by any manner of means it was it might have even been the smallest but the, to the author that doesn't actually matter because Hay is the biggest but Hay's tricky because it's industrial mm-hmm. in scale you mm-hmm. know and it's not it's not very personal appledore was so personal and then i i just it's beautiful it's north devon they've got a shipyard there that's it's a proper working town you know and um so we've been going back there on holiday actually as a family and we, we we've got this particular little cottage on the on the shore that we we hire which overlooks the the estuary oh lovely. and i absolutely love it and there are about three no more than three restaurants but there are three really nice places where we like to book at and it's i just and how love do you it spend
0: there. your days when you're there
1: well, we've got a few things that we know about locally. Like you can go to, well, there's, I suppose Clavelli isn't that far away. Where you go into that beautiful. Um, seaside town in devon where cars are not allowed and you have to park at the top and walk down this massive hill Mm -hmm. that's an incredible part of devon and then down the bottom there's all these sort of cliff jumps you can do into the sea which are all nice and safe and good (laughs) you can go and you can do there's a kind of wet wet world wet wet and wild thing that you can do i can't remember the name i wish i could remember it um where you you go around these obstacles in this big sort of lake that's fun um then we would do a bit of walking uh we go to the beach at westwood hoe that's a big one for us so mm-hmm. we take our beach stuff and we go there so we got lots of things on yeah and then also you sit and read
0: lovely there's nothing better yeah. than a, a great british seaside vacation you could say another hidden gem is Glasgow. Oh. And Glasgow is um, a city that I know has played an important part in uh, your life recently and, and was part of the catalyst for the inspiration for your new novel, The Diver and the Lover. So tell me, please, a story about that.
1: Okay, well, the, my 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 time in glasgow was dictated normally by the routine of eggheads the quiz show Mm -hmm. which i've done maybe 1200 editions of so we, we filmed a lot of them i know incredible so sometimes we do five a day um and it's it's quite a routine it's it's proper sort of military you know so when you have a day off it's really precious and i we had a question about salvador dali in the eggheads and I, I said oh it's a, you know, he's an artist I don't really know that much of I've, I remember at school we had a poster on the wall with the melting clocks mm-hmm. or whatever yeah. and they said oh you should the eggheads obviously the quiz show is based on the fact that these eggheads know everything and the eggheads said ah but there's a brilliant painting by him in the local gallery the Kelvin Grove so I went to see this painting it kind of blew me away maybe because I, I got a rush of blood to the head because I was so exhausted by doing all these quiz shows mm-hmm. but it's called Christ of St. John of the Cross for quite complicated reasons but it shows Christ Christ on the cross from above, and its perspective is extraordinary on this painting. And from I, above, I, so
0: you see what like the top of his head.
1: Yeah, Do you, can you visualise it? Have you no, seen it? No, actually, I okay, should have googled I it before I. Yeah. No, not at all. So, so I, I'll describe it. That's, that's really good. It's almost as if you are falling from space, and the first thing you see as you as you you rush towards Earth is the top of Christ's head. <sighs> but he's also suspended in the air um strangely no no nails in his hands or feet which is a peculiar detail of it but but the interesting thing about the painting was that it was it was inspired by a a monk in the uh, 1600s called saint john of the cross who did a sketch of christ from above and the monk got into terrible trouble because it was regarded as a blasphemy so he so dali was kind of doubling down on the blas- the original blasphemy hmm. but what was fascinating as i looked into this painting and i got really into it is that he got this stuntman to pose it called Russell Saunders. Now, if you look up Russell Saunders' life, these stuntmen back in the day, I tell you what they did, what they went through to do stunts, you couldn't believe what they were doing. And there was one called Yakima Canute, who was in Stagecoach and he, his stunt was to drop under horses and have them trample him and he'd come out the back, you know. So I thought I, I I wrote a love story really about these two sisters who arrive in Spain and Dali is painting this incredible work and he's and the stunt man storms out and and Dali has to find somebody else so he he chooses a waiter at a local hotel with whom my heroine is in love and that's my book so as I as I went into Gla- Glasgow to me is always about doing eggheads and then that painting Christ of Saint John of the Cross and the beautiful Kelvin Grove Gallery. And I can't really call it my hidden treasure because it's so well known. But it's, it's one of those galleries, it's got something for everyone. It's just a collection of loads and loads and loads of different things. And you can't not go there and emerge with a smile on your face.
0: Have you been to the Dali Museum in Figueres?
1: No, because um, having finished the book and written a lot about um, Dali's house in the book, which is the setting for almost the final scene, and having planned the trip, COVID. Lock me down,, oh,
0: so nice. I couldn't
1: then, as my final moment, go to the house Ugh. so i've I'm in completely suspended animation where I'm thinking, I desperately want to get to this this Dali I mean I can tell you all about it because i've I've read so much about it. it's it's five fishing village little houses all glued together as i understand it and it's got this phallic shaped swimming pool and Mm -hmm. it's got a West sofa and everything else and there's a the world being what it is you can now travel through his house on your computer if you want
0: oh yeah yeah, someone's done
1: it so i've had a good look yeah it's it's, not the same no it's It's definitely worth
0: going to if you can when you can. Have you been there? I've been to the Dali Museum in Figueres, yeah. It was absolutely okay. it, actually if was, I was to be asked my travel diaries, I would have said perhaps that would be one of my hidden gem picks because not many people go to Figueres. I don't know if that's necessarily the same one that you're talking about.
1: No, there's two. I tell you what, Figueres is is um I think maybe where he was born, but where he lived and painted was Kadakes, but it the right. two of them are very, very near close to each, each, other, each other, yeah. And Kadakis is on the coast. So exactly. So when you see this famous picture of his of his wife um Gala, sort of standing at the window picture. You know, you see the the, the sea ahead of her, and you're viewing her from behind. That's at, in that house. So you've got a good sense of it. Mm. Strange I have to add man. that to
0: my to my list. Yeah,
1: I mean, it is such. You know, the, the key thing to understand about Dali is that when he was before he was born, his elder brother died. And his elder brother was called Salvador Salvador Dali. Dali. And he was taken to his brother's (laughs) grave. I know. He was taken to see the grave of his brother every day by his mother. So he was looking at his own name on the gravestone every single day as a child. I mean, what would that do to you?
0: Just beyond comprehension. (laughs) So chapter six, moving on then, is your worst travel experience, the penultimate chapter.
1: I went when I was a teenager On a club eighteen thirty thing, it was like hell. I can't. I'm still traumatized by it. I think I was probably twenty, right? So I was, I was at the younger end, and it was this, and it was in a place, oh, Sitges, I think was it was spelled S-I-T-G-E-S, near Barcelona. Yeah, and Sitges
0: is like the gay capital of Spain. That, yeah, that that's I hadn't
1: appreciated that at the time, but yes, you're absolutely right. That that became clear during the holiday. (laughs) That I mean, that was an interesting angle to it, but mainly it was just the fact that we all stayed in this hotel that was falling apart. You know, it was really, and the whole thing was terrible. And and the people who worked as the the tour guides—I mean, this is just a classic thing you do when you're a teenager. Basically, the people who worked as the tour guides or whatever they were were all miserable as well. So they were all mm-hmm. saying, "This is—it's all a disaster. We're so sorry. It's a nightmare." And uh, you know, we had, I suppose we had a sort of a good time, but it was also like hell on earth.
0: Was it organized? I can't remember fun? much
1: about it. It wasn't, you know, the idea that everyone sort of you just you just end up with a girlfriend or a boyfriend and and that's the end of the holiday. I and certainly I didn't end up with anybody, but it was just there was something kind of appalling about it actually. I think it was <laughs> because it was geared up to be I suppose it's basically what you had before Tinder, fundamentally, that's what it was, was you had club 1830, which is right. If you are a teenager and you would like to have a holiday snog, come, we're going to put you together with other people you're, who are interested in the same way. But people were there who were age 29, you know, and right. that, that was that's quite a lot older than 19 as I was, and I don't know, I just it was ch- I just remember going to the hotel room and and the sockets were all pulled out of the wall, and the shower didn't work. And I just suddenly thought, this is going to be a bad one. And I had to, (laughs) strangely, I think I must have been doing my first year at university or something, because I had to read a a couple of Shakespeare plays. And I'd brought The Complete Works of Shakespeare. (laughs) What a
0: juxtaposition. I
1: I know. And I thought I would bring it down to the beach. (laughs) And I realized suddenly, no one is going to look at me if I'm reading The Complete Works of Shakespeare (laughs) on the beach, because it was a really heavy book with really small print. So I didn't get any reading done at all. Uh, it was a real, it, it's so bad. I think I've blanked it out.
0: That's so funny. <laughs> so in contrast to that then, chapter seven, the destination that's at the top of your travel bucket list, where is left that you would love to visit?
1: There's a, there's an island that has been recommended to me that I really want to go to. And it's called Fogo, F-O-G-O.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And it's off now. I don't know if you know it. It's off New Canada. Yes, yes. Yes, Exactly. And there's a woman there, and I happen—I've got a friend who went and stayed in this hotel, and she said, "You've got to go; it's incredible." Now I don't know if you know, any, do you know anything about that it. You've been amazing.
0: The Fogo Island Inn. No, I've not been there though. I recently released a. A podcast episode called Atlantic Canada. So it's about that specific region of Canada. So okay. I learned a little bit more about the, the topography and the wild nature, the whales, the eagles, the lobster. It looks like an amazing part it of the does. world. It does.
1: I mean, I think it's a very high end trip. I think it's very expensive. It's not the idea that you're going to be close to nature, mm-hmm. but you're spending a thousand pounds a day. I think that's, that's probably the the awkward truth at the heart of it. But this friend of mine who went said, you've got to go. And she really sold it to me. And then by chance, and it was an amazing coincidence, there was some sort of drinks party at the Canadian embassy a couple of Christmases ago. And I went there because I've always loved Canada as a country. I've been to Vancouver and Toronto and stuff. And, and I always love it. And this, the woman who did FOGO, who did the hotel and did this amazing regeneration, which was all about saving the island as a place that people could live and work. So it was all the her heart is in the right place. She was there and she was speaking. So mm. I thought maybe it's written in the stars for me to go to Fogo. I just don't think it's something to bring teenagers to because it's not. I think it's probably a place where it's a very mindful location where you're going to be almost zen. Yeah. And then I saw it It all happened at the same time. I think Giles Corrin featured it in his, you know, his amazing hotel hotels program. That, exactly is amazing hotels so I thought okay I have to, so that's my little dream is to go to Fogo
0: yeah and also a great choice because like you say it's a real bastion of uh, sustainability and uh, the uh, and environmental causes you know the, it it's a hotel with a purpose
1: yes and I think okay they obviously basically invite Wealthy people to come and spend money on the island. Well, what's wrong with that? You know, they need a fishing industry. We've got a situation now where the S- Scottish government has just said it, it's going to pay people to go and live on Scottish islands because they're worried they're going to be depopulated mm. because of the lack of jobs and teenagers and everything else. So you're going to get 50 grand to go and live on the Isle of Skye or something. I mean, it's just incredible. I, and I do think... Sign yeah, me I mean, up. <laughs> yeah. Well, I know, but I think you'd have to commit. You know, I think yeah. you'd have to properly...
0: Get involved in the whole infrastructure. and. I yeah.
1: think so. Yeah. I think so. And and you'd then face the same challenges that have driven people away, which is the jobs are in Glasgow or Edinburgh or London or whatever. But I think that to, to actually put that into reverse, as they've done on FOGO, is, is something I'd really like to see. I'd really like to see. Even as I'm talking about it now, I'm feeling excited. I think I might go away and book it now. <laughs>
0: Amazing. Oh, thank you so much, Jeremy. Those were your travel diaries. It's been so much fun to talk to you. Thank you.
1: For me too, Holly. Thank you.
0: Oh, I so enjoyed that one. Thank you so much to Jeremy for joining me today. His novel, The Diver and the Lover, is out now in paperback. A great read for a summer holiday. And with that, it's a wrap for season five. Thank you so much to all my lovely guests for transporting us all around the world so beautifully. And most importantly, thank you, my incredible listeners, for tuning in each week, for telling your friends, for taking the podcast well over one and a half million downloads across 160 countries of the world what a dream come true thank you for being part of it if you are enjoying the podcast leaving a review or a five-star rating is the best way to show your support on your podcast app of choice all the destinations mentioned by my guests are always included in the episode show notes on my website, the and I've also started to save them as guides on my Instagram page, at Holly Rubenstein, where I plot out all the locations that have been discussed. And it's not long till I'm back. We've got a couple of wonderful destination specials coming up, the first in a couple of weeks. We'll be celebrating all things caribbean so keep an eye out for that i'm off to cornwall again i can't get enough of it you can follow my travels on social media and as ever i'd always love to hear from you hear any feedback you have on this season who you'd like to hear from next season any ideas that you might have and season six will return in the autumn no doubt that will come around extremely quickly until then have a wonderful rest of your summer and i'll be back soon airbnb.co.uk forward slash host. Thank you to Airbnb for supporting the Travel Diaries.